This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor and Senior Economist to Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. We have a very interesting show talking about cross assets, talking about fixed income, talking about crypto with my friend Eric Golden, who's founder and CEO of Canopy, former Fidelity Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. We're going to get to Eric in just a few minutes. But Professor, a lot of data on the tapes, a few inflation reports, some earnings were starting. How are you looking at this week's uh, activity? I think the economy keeps chugging along. Um, again, jobless claims, 202. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, that's, still, uh, that's still a strong indicator. As you know, we l- look at that very closely. Yeah, so we got two uh, price reports. Uh, uh, on, on Thursday, we got the CPI a little hotter than expected. But today, the PPI reversed in the other direction. Um, uh, let me go back to the CPI a little bit. In the BLS, uh, which puts out uh, commentary along with the statistics, I want to read you one sentence. Uh, the shelter index. Now, the shelter index is, you know, uh, you know, cost of uh, rentals and owner-occupied uh, uh, homes and is 41% of the core index. Uh, they were. They say the shelter index increased 6.2 percent over last year, accounting for over two thirds of the total increase in all the core index over that time. Now um, we have discussed for months, almost years, the distortion in this rental housing shelter index that the government uses. Um, uh, if we actually take a look at rentals, uh, like apartment list core logic, they are 0% year over year or negative. Um, it is true. Um, I looked at Case Shiller, which is up between 4 and 5% from a year ago. But we talked about in previous programs that that might be biased upward uh, a bit. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, the measures of rental from owner occupied are also uh, up slightly or flat over the year. So it is uh, so that you know if you if you substitute a zero in uh, for the shelter index, uh, you get the uh, overall CPI core somewhere between one and two percent year over year. So uh, we're working on trying to refine exactly uh, what that index is uh, more realistically. But um, that did jump up last month and uh, I think was one of the reasons it was a little bit above uh, expectations. Um, As again, the PPI looks uh, very, very good. Uh, In the market, of course, we have oil still firm as a result of what's going on in the Red Sea. Uh, a slight hot, hot. What do I say? Escalation um, of of that situation is, I think, uh, one of the reasons putting a little bit of pressure on that market. In terms of earnings, the bank earnings that we we got so far pretty mixed. Um, some special uh, items, but most of the other data came in very much expected. Some were up, some were down. Um, we did get a surprise on United Healthcare. They said their health costs were way up, which is interesting because the the health inflation index wasn't way up. It must have been utilization, um, and that would be very interesting um, to see whether that actually spreads. Don't forget, healthcare has been one of the most reliable in, um, uh, gainers 
in the payroll reports, the health care. I mean, it just sort of churns in 20, 30, 35,000 a month as as our economy ages, et cetera, and so on, more and more people go into health care using that. Uh, is there going to be a cost squeeze? Will that cause some layoffs in the future? That's yet to be seen. Uh, finally, of course, we finally, which should have happened much, much earlier, got approval of the uh, the Bitcoin uh, ETFs. Um, a little bit of, uh, at least early on, buy on the uh, rumors, sell on the news. Um, uh, I do think probably there was a little bit too much buying on hype. Um, it's it's like when you know people think well when a stock joins the S and P five hundred and everyone indexes to that that it goes up well people buy it ahead of time often it goes down right when it gets added uh, you will we'll probably see volatility in 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 those indexes as people kind of adjust to where uh, it's happened as you know I have a neutral stance on on Bitcoin um, I, I I like the fact that it's a twenty four seven type of currency. Uh, and gives a kick in the pants to what I think is a lazy banking industry that needs to reform. Um, uh, if it is the digital gold, the question is, will it replace gold in terms of how much people will want? We know the long-term real return on gold is less than 1% a year, which does not rival stock. But uh, if people want to get up to a certain level, then clearly with a fixed supply, that would mean appreciation. But I take no official Word, I'm very pleased it was approved. It should have been approved uh, a long time ago. Professor, I want to. We're going to talk a lot about that issue with Eric throughout the show. But um, in terms of the, I, I want to stay on the what's happening in the Red Sea and and the, the attacks there for a second. And, and just really relative to inflation, you talked about the pressures on inflation is going down. Uh, now this was like one of the key risks was oil prices. Like, how should the Fed think about? attacks like is is would keeping rates high stop attacks from happening and and, and drop inflation pressure how should they be responding to that type of well let, let, let yeah let, and let me mention by the way these two uh, we're, we're going to get the pce uh i think um uh next week um uh, this is the what we saw with cpi ppi is absolutely confirms a hold on the january 31st meeting for the Fed, uh, I mean, outside of some sort of real blow up in the Mideast, um, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 there, there's definitely going to be a hold. There's nothing going to motivate them. They're not ready to move down. Certainly it wasn't all that good to move down. And with the strength in uh, the real economy, uh, again, chugging along, not overly strong, but certainly not dipping into any sort of a, a slump. Uh, it's a hold. Uh, there will be discussion, um, no, you know, no commitment. We'll talk more about it. It's still two and a half uh, weeks away. As far as your question on oil, we are basically self-sufficient on energy. Now, we import certain types of oil um, and we export other other types of energy, particularly, lack, uh, of course, uh, liquid natu natural gas. Um, being self-sufficient in energy means that, you know, anything that, you know, uh, raises it, really minimizes the impact. Nowhere near the impact on Japan or Europe that import almost, you know, most of their energy. Uh, in other words, our energy sector gains uh, are the loss to consumers and the drivers and everyone that uses it, and they just about balance net. It does mean sector rotation. You know, if we should see oil go to 80, 90, 100 or whatever, like it shot up on the invasion, uh, of course, of Russia into the Ukraine, uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, you'll see rotation, but the actual impact to me, um, um, uh, overall globe globally, is not going to be great. However, if there is a big escalation and, uh, Iran tries to uh, close the Straits of Hormuz, et cetera, which are much more important, uh, you know, outlet on Saudi, et cetera, and so on. Um, you know, clearly I, I think, uh, the Fed looks at core, which excludes energy. Uh, there will be a spike like there was in the Ukraine, and it would tend to maybe cause them to lower earlier uh, if there's a big enough spike. Um, but we've had a spike before. We survived it on Ukraine. 
So I don't think that uh, I'm not particularly certain that that would be enough to cause them uh, to uh, go down without other negative indicators um, accompanying it. Well, and, and if there's this, all the supply chain disruption and people moving shipping and sure shipping costs go up, then goods inflation goes up. It's, it's like it's, it's more of a supply chain issue than a thing that the Fed could impact. We have had, yes, we, we've had some increase in container costs, certainly as a result of this, but they're still extremely low. I mean, compared to, uh, you know, what we saw during at least two years of, of that, we're way, still way down. Um, and, um, you know, we'll have to see how that shakes out. They're not, uh, they're not attacking the Russian ships, <laughs> attacking some of the Western ships. Um, I, I actually read somewhere that it's really only two or 3%, uh, you know, in terms of total global, uh, trade, but it does put a, a pinch on, on that. Um, uh, you know, certainly it is a little, uh, supply chain, Nick, but nothing compared to what we had. Um, it would be a slight bit inflationary. And I think the Fed would, uh, you know, if things blew up, uh, they're not that way yet. But if things really do blow up, that would um, uh, that would take a notice of the Fed. But I don't think that would change their action right away. Very good. Eric, uh, we're going to come to you for the rest of the show. But anything you want to jump in with the professor while we still have him to say any questions or any comments on what you heard? I guess I would be curious, um, thank you for having me, uh, Professor Siegel, when you look at your view um, on inflation and its impact on the bond market and some of those reactions, I think there are times that the stuff we learned in school kind of breaks from how the market trades. And you know, I obviously, as a practitioner, have views on how to trade it, but I'm curious from your lens when you're analyzing it, what the reaction function of the bond market relative to inflation and how you think about it. Well, straight bonds are not good in inflationary environments, as we all know, because they're, except for the tips, uh, they're, they're promises to pay dollars, which depreciate in value. Um, we did have a rise in yields. As you know, they briefly went to 5%, and it was certainly a big rise in yields from where they were pre-COVID. Um, and a lot of that is inflationary expectations. Now, fortunate, inflationary expectations have been held pretty much long-term um, intact. And that's one reason I think we are coming down from this inflationary period with less pain than in the past and why inversion of the term structure might not lead to an actual uh, recession. But there's no question. I mean, my, my, my long-term forecast for the 10 year is about 4% and my long run forecast for fed funds is three, three and a half. Um, uh, now, you know, 4%, it's not big from a big long-term history, but certainly it is a low point from the last, you know, um, uh, five, 10 years. Uh, and I think it is because the the deficit and, 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 uh, and, and other shocks of inflation could come in the future, which the bond holder has to compensate for. Well, Professor, thanks for kicking us off to start the show and have a, have a great weekend. Thank you. We'll see you again next week. Next week. Yep. Yeah, bye. I'm going to turn my conversation back to uh, the founder and CEO of Canopy. He's a former Fidelity fixed income portfolio manager. And Eric, you, you've focused uh, in your time since Fidelity a lot on crypto. It's been a, a big week for crypto. What What is your take on, you got? You heard the professor's take on Bitcoin and all these ETFs getting approved should have been sooner. We, we certainly agree at, at Wisdom Tree, but what's your take on what happened this week and what it means to you for the asset class? Yeah, th thanks for having me on, Jeremy. I think it's a big deal for the asset class. I, I agree with Professor Siegel that it's a long time overdue. Um, you know, I think that American capitalism is a place where we're allowed to innovate, try, take risks and fail that, you know, I think when people think of risk, they always think of downside, but risk is just the exposure to an outcome that you're not yet aware of, both up and down. You cannot make money without taking risk. Yes, you're exposing yourself to downside, but your hope is that in some probabilistic fashion, you've exposed yourself to more upside. And to do that, you have to innovate and try things. And so, there's lots of financial products that I don't think are appropriate, that I don't think are right, but it's not my position to say you can't do this. If it's a, if it's a legal 
um, approved thing. There's no law against it. I think it's um, it's quite wrong to sit there and say that uh, an investor can't gain the exposure they want to that asset class. And so the reason why it's historic is um, it's long, long overdue. But, and I've said this before, I've been a bunch of analogies that the Bitcoin ETF, um, I tried to explain to someone who's not on Wall Street that this is like, you know, pickleball getting into the Olympics. It's loud, it's obnoxious, some people hate it, the country clubs don't want it, but it's it's the fastest growing sport and the consumer wants exposure to it and the investing public wants exposure to it. And so the question then becomes, how do they get appropriate and safe exposure in regulated markets? So I come from the background that I was trained as a professional investor. I got very interested in crypto out of curiosity. And what I saw was, you know, one of two views that these worlds are antithesis of each other, that crypto is here to destroy um, traditional finance and traditional finance is going to do whatever it can to destroy crypto. And some people hold those views. But to me, it was these two worlds are going to come together and regulation is going to be a core component. I think Hester Pierce, Pierce who I've interviewed uh, several times now, wrote beautifully that a, a regulator um, should be thought of like a lifeguard. And if there's a beach and a bunch of people want to go on that beach, the government can try to wrap it in a fence and say, don't go swimming. But eventually, the people are going to find a way around the fence. They're going to go to another beach. They're going to get exposure to this. And what the regulator's job is to do is to tell people that, yes, there's a riptide, a shark was sighted, but not to say you can never swim again. And with a global asset class like Bitcoin, people are going to find exposure. They're going to find other ways and ways that I might not prefer them getting to exposure to when I personally have a bias that America has the best capital markets on earth. And so... I think it's a huge day for the asset class to officially become, you know, part of the traditional investment world. Um, I think it's a huge milestone for a lot of teams that have worked tirelessly. You know, I think that Gensler gets a lot of headlines. He is the head of the division. He has a certain view, but both the teams that have worked tirelessly to get this across the line, the SEC staff, there's a lot of great people that are trying to make this work in the U.S. capitalistic system, and they've worked their butts off to get here. So. I think it was a, it's a big day, uh, long overdue, like Professor Siegel said, and I think it will have impacts on the markets for years to come. Yeah, I mean, we've been in the European markets doing this for the last four plus years, and it's like you don't often see the Europeans ahead of the U.S. from an innovation standpoint. But it and it, you know, in Europe, typical fashion, every exchange has their own rules and what assets you're allowed to do. Some allow these coins, some allow those coins. They don't all have uniform standards, but they allowed you to list in Europe way before the U.S. And, you know, they talked about trying to protect investors, but what did you see this week? You saw a brutally competitive fee war where you've got five or six of us at zero fees, um, you know, Wisdom Tree included, but they're, in terms of waiving the fees, I mean, it's bringing the cost down to get exposure. I mean, it's, they let 50 million people at Coinbase trade it, right? Or something like the 50 million people have exposure, but the traditional advisor community or people who have a brokerage account at at your major brokerages couldn't now some brokers are still preventing you from doing it well, why do you think that is like there's still some old school that brokerages. Was such a fascinating and i think um horrible move um i think it, it will be considered very short-sighted i mean look it's not i don't think i can think of an asset class that had this much controversy or strong opinions this also gets me interested i've never as an investor i think one of the lessons you're taught um is you really can't train to have judgment, but you want to have great judgment. Um, but then you're trying to remove your emotion as best as you can when you exercise that judgment. So you don't want to become emotional. I have never seen something cause people to become so emotionally fired up. And that just makes me think if I I just didn't do like um, invert the argument. I found it ironic, you know, Charlie Munger, one of the greatest investors and may you rest in peace would always talk about invert, invert, invert. I would always say that was something I love, invert the argument. And he's saying it's rat poison. I'm like, why is everyone so angry about this? Like what is causing this emotional rage? Um, and there's lots of reasons. And so that alone, you know, makes you look at it. And so you have government um, officials, uh, senators, Congress people that are making it a political, attempting to make it a political issue and making it a, 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 a voter issue. Um, and so because of that, you know, they have an immense amount of power. And these are, you know, if you work at a financial services firm, it's highly regulated. 
And it's a lot easier to say, we're just not going to do this because we're nervous or it doesn't fit in with our long-term benefit. Now, there's some irony that some of the firms that said no also have no benefit to gain, but their competitors do. And so I wonder, you know, it's always being done under the auspices of this is what's best for our clients. But again, you're getting into, okay, what else do you let them buy? Do you let them buy levered ETFs? Do they let them trade options? I mean, where do you draw the line of what's appropriate and what's not? And so I think the reason why it's a very short-sighted and lacks a strategic direction is it's being driven by risk-averse behavior. And in the short term, perhaps that's the right decision. But over the next 30 years, $70 trillion is going to move from baby boomers to younger generations. The largest owners of cryptocurrencies are younger generations. Their first exposure to brokerage platforms is a big deal. There was no Robin Hood when we were, were kids growing up. And so the first exposure you got is you got a job and maybe you got a 401k and someone dropped you somewhere and you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to use. So perhaps when your parents pass you down their assets, um, you'll use your parents' you know, brokerage system, but more likely you're going to use what you're comfortable with. And getting exposure to the assets you want is losing a huge generational play. This has been a big discussion for years of how do you get the younger investors as that giant asset rotation happens from the boomers down to the Gen Zs and um, the younger. And if you've told them they can't do something, that's not really a great start from a reputational standpoint, in my opinion. So in the short term, do those younger generations have a lot of assets? No, maybe they had a couple thousand bucks and they wanted to buy a Bitcoin ETF. But you told them that you know better and the answer is no, they're not allowed to. And they're like, but I own this. And I own this and I'm getting, I'm getting to your point, I'm paying a lot of money to trade it and I wanna have it in my retirement account. I wanna have it in a brokerage account. Why aren't you letting me do this? And I, I think that in the long term, that's gonna prove a bad decision. My instinct is they will all go back on it at some point and find some language as to why um, they're opening it up. But I guess in a, an emotionally driven asset, it's not to be uh, that surprising. Well, you, you mentioned the political season. I'm gonna. I pulled up uh, the tweet from Senator Warren. Uh, Elizabeth Warren tweeted out yesterday: "The SEC gov is wrong on the law and wrong on the policy with respect to the Bitcoin ETF decision. If the SEC is going to let crypto burrow even deeper into our financial system, then it's more urgent than ever that crypto follow basic anti-money laundering rules." And then you got to love Twitter's new. Readers added context they thought people might want to know little button that they have added here. And there are already robust laws to prevent crypto money laundering. Uh, U.S. agencies, FinCEN, SEC, CFTC enforce anti laundering laws. It's an interesting thing because crypto has this thing of where you talk about this, where it started. Started, well, they, they tried to buy a pizza that was, you know, thousands and thousands of Bitcoin, how much that would be worth now. But the... People talk about it as being used for criminals. And I say, well, what do you use dollars for? You know, you have cash. What are you taking out cash from the bank? You're probably trying to avoid taxes or do something not so legal with it. So what my sense is cash might be used more for criminal activities than Bitcoin. But but what do you think? Of course it is. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I, it, it's uh, I'm not going to directly respond to the tweet because I think the community notes did a good job that. It's just a funny thing. The sentence that got me is the law is wrong. And that's coming from someone who writes laws. So then write a law that changes it. Because the reason why we got here, for the people who don't follow this as closely, is not because the SEC approved anything. Like that was the that was the final and um and you could say um necessary piece, but the actual story is that the SEC lost in a court case to allow this to be approved, that they were sued um, and that they didn't follow the right procedures or had the right reason to reject it. So in a court of law, a judge determined by the law that this should exist. So never has a product had a better you know, justification for being legally approved than something like this. Um, on the laundering thing, you know, um, there's two parts of it. There are definitely um, bad actors and scammers. I'm more one that looks at it objectively. I try not to be emotionally, you know, this is the change the world. I was never one to believe that the U.S. dollar was going to be replaced by Bitcoin. I think it's an extremely interesting asset class. I think it's an unbelievable technology that will change the way banking and investments are done in the future. Um, that being said, every new technology has this. Who are the first people to use cars? 
bank robbers, to get away from policemen on horses. Like if there's a new technology, criminals are really good at finding an edge. So we're constantly in this game of whack-a-mole against criminals trying to find something specific to money laundering and the, the language around moving money. Money launderers do not want crypto. They want crisp $100 bills. That The reason is that that's untraceable. Crypto might be the single stupidest asset class to use for laundering. Just like for a second, don't like the headlines, people yelling at it in front of Congress, famous bankers. I wonder why they're saying that. You're telling me an asset class that can be tracked by anyone in a computer is a good way to hide the money you have? Even if you you have it, you somehow illicitly got this money, what are you going to do with it once we know where it is and we can all track it? So what would you rather have? Millions of dollars in $100 bills that are completely untraceable in some bunker or a cold storage wallet that I can all look on change and see if that money's ever moved? It's just... It, it's patently false. And I think this summer there was a great example. Um, a colleague, a former colleague of mine and and someone I'm I'm invested with, Nick Carter, went after a major publication that tried to broadcast this headline that crypto is being used for terrorism. And a big headline name number came out and it got people's attention because I don't know anyone who's gonna say they're the pro-terrorism. I'm against terrorism, I'm against money going to terrorists. I believe in um, the authorities' ability to get involved when it's legally appropriate. But what had happened was when you dug into the story, even though that got a lot of mainstream headlines, the organization had stopped accepting crypto specifically for this reason. Because once they started accepting crypto, everyone who got the crypto was traceable. I'd love terrorists to use crypto because if they did, we could track them down and find them immediately. And that money would be in a way that could not be tracked back. So I think that the notion that it's used for those activities is something that makes good headlines. There are bad actors in all asset classes, including the U.S. banking system, who's constantly getting you know fined and sanctioned in U.S. dollars. And I just think it, it when I analyze that argument, it feels a lot more emotional than it does factual. And it seems like uh, when the the when the when that type of argument comes out, just think of the source and why are they so upset or using that line of reasoning. Now, you know, a lot of people thought this would be a type of sell the news event, that it was moving up a lot of anticipation, and then, you know, all sorts of stuff happens on the day, or, you know, around the week. So maybe not complete surprise, you, you see some, you know, something happening today. But what do you think about the story on flows? Does it net create demand? How much additional demand do you think comes? I mean, there is a real story that you couldn't trade in your Schwab account. It's easier for as an advisor to trade. Um, but what do you think is the the real story here? I think that I think that that's the real story. It's just a matter of time horizon. That just because it got approved today, um, you know, people are just going to suddenly pile into it. The people that are piling into it and out of it right now are all trying to guess what the future is going to hold and wanting a seat to see like what that early trading was. This is very much a lot of deck chairs moving amongst participants. You have a large. This is a very. This is odd in so many ways. Of a you know 11 funds being launched on the same day one with close to 30 billion dollars the other one starting at zero it's just weird um so there's a lot of money moving around if i'm a financial advisor i'm not using these products right away because i want to see the you know um the the money settle out i want to see who has the most liquidity i want to see it tracking the appropriate products just visually um, an example to kind of think about is imagine you had 11 glasses of water on a table and one glass is full of water and the other ones are empty and there's water coming on the table, but it's moving around and people are jockeying for like, well, which one has liquidity? Where are there arbitrage opportunities? Which one has is, is the best one to hedge? Um, and so the, the, the table's full of water. That's not a time to that, that an advisor wants to get involved. So I think it really is the beginning of, okay, the products are launched. That was a 10 year legal battle. The next couple of weeks, what you'll see is um, the funds flows start to kind of stable out where, you know, you're not going from zero to 100 million and then to 200 million. You're going to get to like, OK, it's a billion dollar fund experiencing whatever, 20 million of net flow per day uh, or whatever it is. And that will lead to a tighter tracking of the asset class. So you, you won't see this behavior where, you know, Bitcoin's up and the ETFs are down. And then you're going to see the advertising and the in front of advisors and why does this make sense and research reports and how does this change the risk of portfolio of a, 
of an end client? What should my asset allocation be? And I think that's the process and that takes time. Um, yes, it's been in the headlines for a while, but it's a very new asset class. And, and for all intents and purposes, it just started in the, in the traditional world yesterday in a reasonable manner. And what I mean by that is, yes, you could have self-custodied. Yes, you could have bought a hedge fund or a venture capital fund for a certain population. What you just did is made it available to everyone. And so I think you have to give it some time before the advisors start to say, okay, which is, even if you said, um, I'm gonna add Bitcoin to my model, I'm gonna add some percent of my asset allocation and tell people, are you interested or not? Well, which, which vehicle are you gonna use? And what's your justification around that? And one justification could be, this is the most liquid vehicle. We've tracked it for six months. The tracking error is appropriate. The expense ratios are, are we're comfortable with the team, the process, the custodian, whatever it is that they want to do as part of their due diligence. And then and only then do I think you'll see it um, kind of started to get more adoption in the advisor channels. It's such a, as you said, a unique thing of 10 people or 11 people going after it all the same day. And you, in that type of thing, the pricing can get irrational. Pricing, I mean, like what you charge, you know, for it. And ETFs were already brutally competitive. You got a bunch of us waved to zero. Do you think this wave to zero thing could be permanent? Do you think people can come off zero? Like, will there be irrational pricing because people just, and listen, there's, there are some zero fee ETFs. Bank of New York Mellon has some zero fee ETFs. You're like, why are they doing that? Hey, it is a good question. Why are they doing that? But it's, you know, they, maybe they do securities lending and they think they're going to get some offsetting securities lending revenue. But are there people who might view this in a way that's not just dollars and cents on the ETF? They're trying to make money in a different way that the ETF just is there. Yeah, uh, I have a couple of thoughts on it. So the first is that it's it, while it's okay, it doesn't usually make sense to look at an ETF like an individual company. An ETF is a product of a financial services company. So you can imagine if you walk into a retail store to buy, you know, a fancy shirt that they might be selling hats in the front for you know, close to cost or maybe even less money. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how much it costs to make a Bass Pro hat, but they cost like five bucks. Maybe it costs seven bucks, but everyone has them. It's free advertising. It gets people in the door. It's worth it. You know, doorbusters on Black Fridays. They're probably not making money on that stuff, but then they're hoping you're here to buy other products. They satisfy you in other ways. So there's just the business aspect of, you know, does doing that at the financial complex level make sense? The second point you raised is anytime someone says something costs zero, be weary of like they're probably making money in other places. Securities lending, the idea that that fund now sits on assets, that it has the ability on a short-term basis to loan and generate income against is a positive thing for these institutions, especially with the size of some of these products. Um, so there are other ways. I think what makes it unique in this race is there's a third reason, which I don't think I've seen before, where you have crypto native firms versus traditional finance firms. So a traditional finance firms has a lineup of products. Maybe this is important. They think that, for example, I'm making this up, but if I'm running a financial services firm and I think that the millennials and Gen Zs who I'm really targeted on love this product, I give it away for zero because I'm hoping over time they stay loyal to the brand, they are associating with us and they grow their wealth with us and eventually we get a much bigger book of business and it was all worth it, just part of any other customer acquisition story. If you're a crypto firm, and this is, you necessarily don't run other ETFs, you're not running a Japan ETF, a bond ETF, uh, you know, an S&P ETF, what you are is long crypto and long other crypto products in the crypto ecosystem. And so this just got your foothold in the traditional world. So for you, maybe it is really powerful. And you know, by the way, it's not necessarily the top priority in other financial services firms. So with my crystal ball that gets foggy and nobody can guess what the future is going to bring, there's no way there's 11 ETFs in the future. Like someone had mentioned, there's just going to be a lot of these. I don't know. I don't know what your experience, but to me, something like this is going to consolidate through roll-ups, through people being pushed out on fee compression. And you're going to have probably three to five winners where one to two, maybe three are very, very large and become the dominant asset class. And the reason why that happens is that the street starts to trade that asset as the primary source of liquidity. They hedge against it, they go short, they go long, they use it for arbitrage, options are written off of it, and it just becomes the most liquid, deepest market. And that is a position in a true moat that's hard to 
to get out of. Now, is there a place for a two and a three? Yeah, there's tax loss harvesting. There's other people that can't get on every platform. It doesn't mean that it will just be a monopoly, but my instinct is it probably goes to oligopoly. And what you're seeing with the fee race is that race just got, that timeline, whatever I had when I first saw them and people were posting 60, 90 basis points, I was like, no way. And so for me, I'm trying to figure out what the sound barrier is. And the sound barrier is the custody fee that Coinbase was able to extract from the sponsors because there are fees that these things have to pay. So it's not just zero, they have costs. This is operationally intense products. They need specialists, they have to pay custody. There are auditing requirements, there's security costs, there are things that they have to do. Um, And so how long will someone bleed negative? Well, kind of depends on their business model and how critical it is for their long-term strategic vision. So um, I think it's possible someone stays at zero. It's kind of crazy because it's a new asset class and that's not usually what happens. But there's a lot of non-financial reasons I could see someone playing that game. And part of it is to try to make sure you're in that final three or in that top three product lineup. It's going to be a fascinating dynamic. One thing we didn't talk about yet, how do you think people should size it in a portfolio? The professor kicked off saying about indexing to the market and the total size of crypto. I've seen estimates of around 1% of total world assets, you stocks, bonds, commodities, all the things people can allocate to. That would be like a 1% allocation. When I personally bought my first Bitcoin, I tried to size my crypto around 1%. And actually, that's how I started. Then it sort of drifts higher. And I think one of the hardest parts is like, how do you think about rebalancing as it gets to levels of uncomfort? And what is that comfort level? But how do you think about exposure to it and uh, what do you think advisors should be thinking about if they thought about it for their own portfolios? Yeah, so um, we'll probably start with the disclaimer. This is not financial advice. I'm you know, just speaking on behalf of my own opinion of it. Um, because my personal situation, uh, I don't recommend for other people. But I think the reason why 1% is the number that people kind of are anchoring to is they're trying to find a number where it's, if it works or it's significant, it's enough to affect the whole portfolio but not so big that they start to get uncomfortable. And the problem is that it's such a high volatility asset um, that that's a tricky thing to manage and it's priced 24 seven. So I think, um, you know, there's people that have done great work on the more alternative asset classes and maybe the volatility dampening of being a little bit having to do with accounting. What I mean by that is if you have exposure to a venture capital company, um, you know, it could be worth a lot of money. It could be worth zero private equity, you know, but they, they, they market in a way that it looks like it's got a lot lower vol. Um, but when you're exposed to that vol, it definitely has a psychological impact on the end client and the advisor's relationship with that client. So what I'm saying is if I put you in a fund and I didn't tell you the price about it, but once a year, that volatility can be high. But when you see, you know, flashing red lights and breaking news on CNBC that there's a crash or something or it's up 18%, I just think that's a different asset class. So that has to do with sizing. So it's relative to someone's entire risk tolerance. And what I think about for myself was, you know, I started off in that range and it got significantly higher. And what I tried to do was lower other risk assets um, against it. So when I was to your question about rebalancing, it was like, okay, should this come out of my alternatives exposure? Should this come out of an equity exposure? But I shouldn't do nothing. I shouldn't just let this thing balloon when it goes on a run and take no action. So I do think you have to think about it in the context of a portfolio and get comfortable. And again, right now we're just talking about the Bitcoin ETF. I personally have exposure to things far outside uh, Bitcoin, but are crypto related in my opinion, as I manage my own money, highly correlated. And so therefore I think about it as kind of one large exposure in my overall portfolio. And I rebalance it against what I think are, you know, my highest risk assets um, that have the highest volatility. Yeah, you've got your your own podcast uh, with the Colossus team making markets. It started off and you, you did a bit more if, you, if people want to do go to the profile. You could see a lot of podcasts with Eric on talking about the Board 8 Yacht Club and some other things. But so but let's talk about so the next major crypto is Ether. I think, you know, so people are trying to predict from from now this ETF from Bitcoin's approved is Ether next. And they were sort of trying to pin Gensler on that on CNBC this morning. And he was like, this is a one off for Bitcoin. And it clearly was trying to avoid the question is Ether next. But it comes down to it was like, well, Bitcoin was viewed as a commodity by the CFTC. And 
and they did it. Now, Ether has actually got a futures contract trading, and there could be some extensions, but there might be some people still there at the SEC who thinks Ether has got some security elements. It has to do with the lending and the staking yields, or so the staking yields that you get off of that. Is Ether next? How do you think about broader exposure beyond Bitcoin and Ether? Um, I think that the market is clearly anticipating it. The trade going into Bitcoin ETFs approval for people following it. I mean, I was at, I forget when I tweeted it, but it was months ago. I was at 99% certainty this was going to happen. It just felt like after the court case specifically, this was going to be the, um, you know, the, the case. So then the, came became, the trade became, well, okay, if Bitcoin ETF gets approved, what's the market going to do next? And as you're seeing, um, there was this big move where Bitcoin versus Ethereum, Bitcoin massively outperformed. And then right as the approval happened, the money started rotating, rotating to Ethereum as the next you know, product. The market is telling you, and one way to look at this is if you look at Grayscale's product, I think it's E-T-H-E, you can see the discount. That discount is a, uh, it's like a prediction market of what are the odds that this thing is going to um, be approved because the, the discount exists because the product doesn't allow for the, um, the arbitrage. And if it turns into an uh, ETF, then that, that should be a lot closer to zero. I think it was at 10%, um, last I checked. And so that market's saying it's a strong probability, you know, they've traded a lot wider, but it's not guaranteed. And the reason why it's not guaranteed is, um, can the commission come up with concerns over Ethereum not being as clear cut as Bitcoin to your point? Um, you know, a futures product was approved. So that did in a lot to a lot of market participants, I think, open the door that this is a likely event. Um, but the Bitcoin, you know, product was a, I lost a court case, which is why I'm approving it. So does another court, do, do, do we have to go through the same rigmarole where the commission has to uh, reject it and then someone has to sue and then a court has to say the SEC can't reject it? Like, it's just a really... Uh, clunky and wasteful taxpayer dollar system if that's how we're going to approve financial products. Um, but it seems more likely than not we will have one, similar to how I think people felt about Bitcoin ETF, and it doesn't feel like it's going to take another 10 years before you see an Ethereum one. After that, I mean, I don't see why people, like this is why um, I think we need new forms of regulations or definitions of how to handle this because, okay, so then what happens? Then you're going to go for the Solana ETF and, you know, XRP is going to come to market. And so you're just going to go down the chain of why wouldn't other people attempt to offer these products because they want to see if they, if, if the um, investing public wants them. So I think it's plausible. Um, and I, like I said, I, I think that it's most likely we'll see one and, I, I think that it's probably within the next year or so, if I had to guess, just finding some resolution, whether that's a, official approval is one route, a rejection in a court case is another route, which would extend that time frame, or a regime change. You're, you do have an election coming up. It is possible that there's new people in power that feel differently about this, and that could affect it both ways. Just as a, if, for people who like buckets for traditional advisor community, um, you've got these things certainly have a lot of high volatility. I've thought about Bitcoin more as like this currency, sort of a more speculative, like today's generation gold, like is one of the things I've thought about. Ether more is like the the infrastructure, sort of a tech platform more so than the currency elements. And so there's more like a venture capital growth story than others. But when, when you think about where people would take this from, it's really risk, you know, risk buckets like equities is one you'd say, or size it from your yeah. equity allocations. But any other things you think about or other beyond Bitcoin, Ether, and these other things, like where would you, again, take it from in allocating to portfolios? Well, I think the first part starts off with, you know, what is it? The digital gold one's interesting. But have you ever seen someone wear a hat that said gold on it or shoes that were like gold colored because they like gold? Like, I don't, it's just such a different asset class i think it's probably the closest corollary we have but people feel very passionate about this in a way that i don't see people getting shirts of other asset classes or or wanting other people to know that they're they believe in this as a as some sort of um viewpoint so it, it, it's unique i think to answer your specific question about asset allocation i think it's alternatives and high risk or 
you know, high growth equities is probably the place that seems most appropriate. So for someone who has alternative exposure to venture capital and private equity, I think it's going to go there. Um, so I think what people will do is they'll say, whatever our model was, if a client was approved for alternatives, we'll lower our exposure um, to that. For someone that wasn't in those asset classes, what part of their like high beta um, equity portfolio would I potentially, you know, get get involved in um, to lower the exposure? I want to give a few minutes to talk about what you're doing at Canopy. Um, so you're founder and CEO of Canopy. Uh, I know it's early stages, but what what do you what can you say about what you're building? Uh, sure. So uh, we are a venture back company. We're currently in stealth mode, um, and I'm extremely excited about uh, what we're working on. And the best way to describe it is that we're building an investment technology platform for advisors that will allow them to customize and tax individualized portfolios. So a point you made earlier about the different asset classes, you know, I come from the fixed income market, I'm interested in the crypto market. Um, the reason, and this actually gets back to another point you made about just why the podcast changed, was that in general, I think of assets and investments very similarly, that there's risk, there's analysis, there's returns, and the question is, what's the appropriate way to get exposure to those? And the thing I've learned through other markets is just a lot of similarities, whether you're trading bonds, stocks, cars, watches, wine, farmland, crypto, there's there's central themes that a lot of you touched on, which is with great questions over what should your asset allocation be? What's the liquidity like? How do I trade about this? How do I think about this? And people who start to generate wealth have broad exposure to all of these things. And so at Canopy, our view is, what's the appropriate way to get exposure to those asset classes? And we take it a step further when we start to think about multi-asset class, which is that one thing I've learned um, is that the way we think about tax in a portfolio is critical. And I saw this at you know the really high family offices where you're managing money for billionaires. That for years, you know, we, we were at a, we were in a place where investment firms offered alpha. I can outperform the market. And then we had this huge revolution of passive products that, you know what, why don't you just get the passive and, and active has gotten crushed. And then from passive, we got the advents of like, you know, ETS, what's the right wrapper? We've seen, you know, um, direct indexing with, well, what if you own the individual components? And so I'm a person who's always loved and operated um, um, with SMAs, you know, separately managed accounts. And I think that when you start to think about tax individualization, it's really interesting to look through the lens of individuals' tax situations and what asset allocation makes sense. So we've always thought about like risks and objectives. And I think that tax and liquidity are areas that are extremely important. And that's some of the stuff that we're, we're building at Canopy. You know, it's interesting. I mean, there's there, we, there's a lot of people who break down within equities is tax loss harvesting, and I'm going to rebalance back to, well, I'm going to try to sell things that are at a loss and, and where that comes in. Um, maybe another, I mean, what, something worth thinking about at Wisdom Tree Prime, which is our sort of wallet basing is can you even spend can you work on sell when you're going to pay your debit card can you sell things that are at a loss you know because we're sort of connecting spending to traditional assets whether it's a fund or 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 treasuries or whatever um that's sort of another interesting i would add the spending overlay on top of all that in the tax conversation but but do you think sometimes people overstated i've often said etfs are because of the create redeem feature you get a lot of the tax benefits and you can only offset a certain amount of income with your tax loss harvesting. If you have any rebalancing, you're going to, you're going to run out of gains to, because the markets go up over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I okay. So uh, we've had this before, but I think in the ETF SMA debate, um, there's a, both sides, I think massively overstate their value. So I don't think on ETFs, it's talked about enough about, securities lending. I don't think market makers constantly taking bid-ask spread that would have otherwise ended up in shareholders' pockets is discussed. I think on the SMA side, you know, people can overextend and say what the benefits are to your point that after an account's been fully invested and eventually runs out of tax losses, there's a question of does that vehicle make sense? So I think that the vehicles make sense at different points of time and for different people. I think what the 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 one major thing of why maybe not that I say like I'm on a team, but I've been a big proponent of managing. And the thing I like about SMAs is it really is the most open and flexible vehicle to kind of push the frontier of what you can do on innovation. You made that example about a debit card and spend. It's fascinating. But think about a wealthy investor. Anytime 
money needs to be moved, tax should be thought about. So I don't care what vehicle you use. I'm, I'm, I'm less uh, uh, concerned about that. But your tax situation, if you could, if I could have an AI robot, that AI robot would be running around and just saving me taxes. I think someone tweeted, like, we worry too little about tax optimization. I'm like, are you kidding me? People worry about it at year end and when they're taxes. And talk to anyone in crypto that's made a lot of money. They're like, please, I don't want to think about taxes till I have to. I so wish I could just offset that to someone else. So if you're managing, you know, a bond portfolio and an SMA and suddenly, you know, Jeremy's like, hey, our friend Brandon's doing this startup. We want to send money to him. There's a capital call. Well, how should we raise those funds? Ideally, you look at holistically in their account. What, what's happening now? How much do I have in my cash? Should I raise some money? So like that rebalancing moment happens when an event triggers. To me, you should be thinking about tax optimization every day. It's just way too time consuming and too much energy for the average person. So if you're a billionaire, you have people that do that for you every day. And we'd like to bring a lot of that value down to the advisor and wealth channels. Our, our friend Brandon's probably trying to buy a farm with that tax loss harvesting <laughs> that, that he's doing. Um, a final minute here. And as you think about, again, any closing thoughts, we could have you talk about munis and SMAs all day long. We'll have to do another show on that at some point. But any final thoughts on Canopy or people should be watching you from stealth mode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm hope I'm excited about 2024. I'm excited to share more um, as we continue to build. I think it's going to be an exciting year. Um, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so I definitely suggest following Making Markets, uh, the podcast there. I've been been a guest in a number of uh, great episodes there. I mean, this Bitcoin ETF story, um, really such a long time in the works, and it's been fun to talk to Eric about all this stuff. Uh, any other places people can find you, Eric, on Twitter? Eric Golden X, is that the right X. handle? Eric Golden yep. X. Uh, Dion in the studio, thanks for helping us. It's been a great conversation. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.